How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. In November 1922, archaeologist Howard Carter pushed a candle through a hole he had made in a sealed tomb door and peeked inside. Can you see anything? He was asked. Yes, wonderful things. Carter had just discovered the tomb of an obscure 18th dynasty pharaoh, Tutankhamun. Piled high with a dazzling array of treasures, the contents would stun the world. Carter and his sponsor, Lord Carnarvon, had made the greatest discovery in the history of Egyptology, a fully intact 3,000-year-old pharaoh's tomb untouched by grave robbers. The story was mesmerizing. Henry Morton, the only journalist allowed on the excavation, filed a series of reports of Carter's discoveries to the London Times, and the reports kept coming. The tomb was so stuffed with treasures it took the team nearly three months to sort and catalog them all. But by February the next year, Carter and Carnarvon were ready to open the inner burial chamber that they hoped would contain the pharaoh himself. They were astonished by what they found. Three solid gold coffins nested inside of each other. Inside the final one was the mummy of the boy king, Tutankhamun. Shortly after the amazing discovery, tragedy struck. Lord Carnarvon fell ill and died after an insect bite went septic. Rumors began to circulate that Carter and Carnarvon had found stone tablets in Tutankhamun's tomb inscribed with a curse. Had Carnarvon been struck down by a pharaoh's spell for daring to desecrate his burial place? I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Frank Lloyd Wright is regarded as one of the most brilliant minds in the history of American architecture. One of his creations was Taliesin, meant to be a hideaway for Wright and his mistress. But that beautiful home soon became a scene of utter horror and it left behind a haunting. A family buys a home to renovate and resell. 
but soon they come to realize why the previous owners might have been so eager to sell the house and get out. A big smile is usually a joy-filled and even comforting sight. So why do so many terrifying encounters with evil include entities or villains with evil grins? If you decide to visit the most haunted house in Philadelphia, whatever you do, avoid the death chair. And it's October, so we're bound to see numerous images of Dracula, the Wolfman, and Frankenstein's monster. But no creepy month of Halloween would be complete without our toilet paper-covered friend, the mummy. And of course, the curse that goes with it. But in real life, did the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb by Howard Carter in 1922 really unleash a terrible curse? We begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. In 1923, three months after the breaking open of Tutankhamun's tomb, had Lord Carnarvon been struck down by the Pharaoh's curse for daring to desecrate his burial crypt? Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, thought so. Ironically, for a man associated with the logical detective, Doyle was an ardent believer in the supernatural and declared that Carnarvon was struck dead for daring to disturb the young king. The newspapers and the public, already in the grip of pharaoh fever, were hooked on the story. Over the coming years, they would link dozens of strange and early deaths amongst those associated with the tomb's discovery to the curse. Was this simply early tabloid sensationalism and wild imaginations? Or did a sinister curse doom those who dared enter the pharaoh's last resting place? Even before Carnarvon's death, there was talk of impending doom. The day Carter first discovered the entrance to the tomb, a cobra got into his house and killed his pet canary. Pharaohs were represented by the cobra, and Carter's workers felt it an omen. Do not enter. Best-selling novelist Marie Corelli quoting an ancient Arabic manuscript, told the press that the most dire punishment follows any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. Carter also received a rash of letters warning him not to proceed. The archaeologists dismissed it all as nonsense, but when his benefactor, Carnarvon, died shortly later, it sent the press into a frenzy. It wasn't entirely clear how he died, although the suggestion was that a mosquito bite had become infected when Carnarvon accidentally nicked it whilst shaving. After a delirious fever, he succumbed on April 5, 1923. More details emerged that encouraged the speculation. The night of his death, there was a blackout in Cairo, and reportedly Carnarvon's dog back in England let out a howl and dropped dead the press around the world had become obsessed by the idea Carnarvon was killed by a pharaoh's curse. 
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle publicly endorsed the idea. A Los Angeles Times leader wrote, No matter how little superstitious a man may be, the act of breaking the rest so carefully guarded through the centuries must cause an emotion which time can never efface. More deaths were to follow. A few weeks after Carnarvon's death, Carter gave wealthy financier George J. Gould a private tour of the tomb. Soon after, Gould came down with a fever and died. Other early tomb visitors died violent or strange deaths within the year. Prince Ali Colonel Fahmy Bey and South African millionaire Wolf Joel were both murdered and British MP Aubrey Herbert went blind and died of blood poisoning. Herbert's death was particularly tragic for the Carnarvon family as he was Lord Carnarvon's half-brother. He had reported on entering the burial chamber, something dreadful is going to happen to our family. Perhaps the press were right. Within months, a disparate group of characters from around the world were all dead after visiting the tomb. The following year, 1924, would only fuel the speculation. In January, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed, who had X-rayed King Tutankhamun's body, died from a mysterious illness. H. E. Evelyn White was next. The young British archaeologist was one of the first to enter the tomb after Carter. After writing, I have succumbed to a curse in his own blood, he hung himself. Sir Lee Stack, governor of Sudan, was also amongst the earliest visitors to the pharaoh's tomb. Later that year, he too met a violent end, shot dead on the streets of Cairo by an assassin. The next year, one of the more peculiar stories surrounding the curse hit newsstands. Howard Carter had given his close friend, Sir Bruce Ingham, a paperweight made from a mummified hand wearing a scarab bracelet. Inscribed upon the bracelet were the words, Cursed be who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Soon after, Ingham's house burnt down. When it was rebuilt, it flooded. In 1926, George Benedite of the Louvre Museum died shortly after visiting the tomb. Another Egyptologist, Aaron Ember, also died that year in a curious fire in his home. After Howard Carter himself, the main archaeologist to excavate Tutankhamun's tomb was A. C. Mace. Mace spent years on the dig and co-authored the first book about the discovery with Carter. In 1928, after complaining of increasing weakness, he collapsed. He died shortly later, seemingly of arsenic poisoning, in the same hospital as Lord Carnarvon. 1929 saw two particularly strange deaths. As Howard Carter's personal secretary, Richard Bethel was present at the opening of the burial chamber in 1923. He was found in November, smothered to death in his bed. A few months later, Bethel's father, Baron Westbury, jumped from his seventh-floor flat in a delirium. The flat contained artifacts from the dig obtained by his late son. Westbury's suicide note read, I really cannot stand any more horrors and hardly see what good I am going to do here, so I am making my exit. Finally, in 1929, 
Lord Carnarvon's other half-brother died from malarial pneumonia. Within six years of the discovery, Carnarvon, both his half-brothers, Carter's chief archaeologist, his personal secretary, and his father, the excavation's radiologist, and at least half a dozen other prominent individuals who visited the tomb were all dead. Was it down to vivid imaginations and a lot of coincidences, or did this rash of death have a more sinister cause? Perhaps we don't need to suppose any supernatural source for the curse. Could there be a more scientific answer? The curse of Tutankhamun was still claiming victims 70 years on, but this time it pointed to a scientific solution to the mystery. Cheryl Munson died in 1995 of respiratory failure, a few weeks after visiting Tutankhamun's tomb. Munson didn't just visit the tomb, she touched the walls and ran her fingers across the paint. Back home, she fell ill. Her immune system, already weakened by a battle with cancer, had become overrun by spores or a toxic fungus, Aspergillus niger. Doctors were baffled. Could there be any connection to her recent trip to Egypt? The suspicion wasn't entirely new. After Carter Vaughn's death, American politicians had ordered an immediate investigation into mummies to see if they posed the same medical threat apparent in the tomb. Arthur Conan Doyle, when not proposing supernatural sources, suggested the curse may be down to the pharaohs deliberately booby-trapping their tomb walls with poisons. Howard Carter, unaware of any potential danger, first noted patches of fungus on walls of the burial chamber in 1923, and experts say such mold and fungus is not uncommon. When you think of Egyptian tombs, you have not only dead bodies but foodstuffs, meats, vegetables, and fruits, said Jennifer Wagner, an Egyptologist at the University of Pennsylvania Museum in Philadelphia. It certainly may have attracted insects, molds, and bacteria, she continued. The raw material would have been there thousands of years ago. Other studies of ancient mummies have shown they too can carry mold and bacteria, two of which, Aspergillus niger and Aspergillus flavus, are potentially deadly. These molds can cause allergic reactions, ranging from congestion to bleeding in the lungs, and are particularly harmful to people, like Carnarvon, with weakened immune systems. French physician Dr. Carolyn Stanger-Philip, in her doctoral thesis for the Strasbourg School of Medicine in 1985, linked six of the Tutankhamun deaths to a severe allergic reaction to the mold. Stanger-Philip claimed the victims were stricken with allergic alveolitis, an inflammation of the tiny air chambers in the lungs, and died of pulmonary insufficiency. Further dangers have been found inside sealed sarcophagi ammonia gas, formaldehyde, and hydrogen sulfide have all been detected, which in strong enough concentrations can cause burning of the eyes and nose, pneumonia-like symptoms, and even death. Lord Carnarvon was already ill before the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, injured in a bad car crash the previous year. The next victim, George J. Gould, was already weakened by illness at the time. Did exposure to toxic mold hasten their deaths? 
perhaps a supernatural curse did exist, of a fashion, in the minds of its victims. Often ascribed to the invention of journalists, the public imagination in the 1920s was very receptive to the idea of curses. This was a far more credulous and superstitious time, and tales of horror and dark goings-on in foreign lands were immensely popular. Could it be some of those that died simply believed the curse to be real and this hastened their deaths? With the media hype so strong about the curse of the pharaohs, there is evidence at least some of the deaths were influenced by the belief they had succumbed to it. Evelyn White's grisly suicide is the most obvious candidate. A young archaeologist who visited the tomb in 1923, he left the note supposedly written in his own blood, complaining that he was cursed. Although Evelyn White had a troubled private life, could the fact he visited Tutankhamun's burial chamber have made him believe his troubles were caused by the much-vaunted curse? Another suicide ascribed by some to the curse was Baron Westbury, who jumped from a seventh-floor balcony to his death in 1930. His suicide note complained about the horrors. Westbury's son, Richard Bethel, was the second man to enter the burial chamber after Carter himself. Just months earlier, he had died in strange and violent circumstances. Did Westbury believe he too was doomed and took matters into his own hands? Death shall come on swift wings to him who disturbs the peace of the king. Rumors that Carter had found those words inscribed in the burial chamber were never substantiated, and Carter himself always denied it. However, ancient Egyptians did sometimes leave curses in their tombs. The tomb of Kantika Ikeki contains an inscription, As for all men who shall enter this my tomb, impure, there will be judgment, an end shall be made for him, I shall seize his neck like a bird, I shall cast the fear of myself into him. Another old kingdom curse reads, Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. Some mastaba walls in Giza and Saqqara were also inscribed with curses meant to scare off tomb robbers. The modern idea of a mummy's curse did not begin with the Carter dig. Egyptologist Dominic Montserrat traces the idea back to Victorian London and bizarre strip shows where real mummies were unbandaged live on stage. This odd spectacle inspired Little Women writer Louisa May Alcott to write one of the first mummy's curse stories in her long-forgotten 1869 book Lost in a Pyramid or The Mummy's Curse. American Egyptologist Herbert E. Winlock was one of the most prominent skeptics over the mummy's curse. If it existed, Winlock argued, it was not very effective. He scrupulously collected newspaper stories of deaths attributed to the curse. By the 1930s, according to Winlock, the vast majority of those directly involved with the excavation were actually still alive. Of the 26 who were present at the first discovery of the burial chamber, only six had died by 1934. Only two of the 22 present at the opening of the sarcophagus were dead ten years later. All ten of those who were there when the mummy was unwrapped 
were also still alive. It seems the pharaohs were not that keen on striking down those who desecrated the grave after all. The best example was Howard Carter himself. As the discoverer of the tomb, he should have been the main target for any curse, yet he went on to live for another 15 years, until his death in 1937, of natural causes. Lord Carnarvon himself may have been, somewhat inadvertently, responsible for the curse. In January 1923, growing tired of the endless clamor of journalists for interviews and access, he decided to sell exclusive rights to cover the excavation to just one newspaper, the Times of London. Rival newspapers were furious. This was the story of the decade, and one newspaper had a monopoly on it. To compensate, journalists like Arthur Weigel of the Daily Mail were forced to find different ways to cover Carter's excavation. Myths, ancient curses, and mysterious deaths sold newspapers and were a good way to feed the public's insatiable appetite for stories of Tutankhamun's tomb without access to the site itself. Thus were born ripe tales of the dead canary, the power cut in Cairo, and suicide notes written in blood. Stories that continue to this day. Up next, a family buys a home to renovate and resell. But soon, they come to realize why the previous owners might have been so eager to sell the house and get out. A big smile is usually a joy-filled and even comforting sight, so why do so many terrifying encounters with evil include entities or villains with evil grins? And if you decide to visit the most haunted house in Philadelphia, whatever you do, avoid the death chair. These stories and others when Weird Darkness returns. IRS. Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The IRS does not give up until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the IRS. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, Call Tax Solutions now at 800-417-9743. That's 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743. The month of October is the official anniversary month of Weird Darkness, and to celebrate, I'd like to do something to benefit others. Through the month of October, I'm asking you to help us raise funds to combat depression and suicide. I don't know anyone who has not been affected by them in some way. Either you suffer from depression yourself, or you know someone who has, a family member or a friend. Some of us have even lost people to suicide, 
Well, the goal is to raise at least $1,000 this month, hopefully more, which will all be donated in its entirety to depression and suicide prevention. You can make your donation of any amount right now by visiting WeirdDarkness.com and clicking on Battle the Darkness in the right-hand column. Darkness is fine for entertainment, but it is lousy for life. Please give now whatever you can. Be it $1 or $100, it all adds up. Again, click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. And thank you in advance for your generosity. following events took place when I was around 15 years old and lived at home with my parents and younger sister. We had moved into a new house that was only around 20 years old but still needed a fair bit of renovating. The house was situated on an acre and a half of land with a creek running along the rear boundary. There was only one previous owner who had built the home with her late husband. Prior to that, it was simply vacant bushland. My parents had bought homes to renovate and flip, so to my sister and I, this was just another adventure. I can't tell you exactly when I first started to feel uneasy about the house, but I do know that there were many little events that I simply didn't notice until I finally grouped them together. There are too many things to mention, but I'll focus on a few that have particularly affected me. We had settled in, and there were for maybe a few months before I started experiencing whispers before I slept. It would always happen during that time when you're a few seconds from sleep, but the slightest noise can startle you. The voice would mimic either my sister or my mom in such a convincing way that I would always reply and not realize until afterwards that it was not them. It would only whisper my name, nothing more, nothing less. I would answer and wait for a reply, but nothing. My mom and sister were always sound asleep. Soon after this, I started to experience sleep paralysis. I had never had this before, and it absolutely terrified me. It felt like as soon as I would fall asleep, I would drift only partly back into the real world. My eyes would still be closed, but my brain was more awake than ever. I'd always remember the overwhelming feeling of someone in the room, made all the worse by me not being able to see what was happening. I couldn't move, couldn't scream for help, and I'd get this pressure on my chest that got so bad that I'd stop breathing. It was only then that I would wake up, gasping for air. Once awake, the room was exactly how it should be, but the feeling of someone watching would always linger. Gradually, over time, these experiences became more and more frequent until I would dread falling asleep because I knew what was to come. Perhaps the most startling incident happened to both my sister and me. I was asleep when she suddenly tapped me on the shoulder and woke me up. As soon as I opened my eyes and looked at her, I knew that something had happened. She was terrified. She told me that she had gone into the kitchen to get a glass of water and saw Dad sitting on the sofa, upright. She had called out to him, but he didn't answer or even move. She began to feel uneasy and ran to get me. I was not happy about going back into the kitchen, but a part of me thought Dad might have just been asleep. 
we slowly walked back into the kitchen and over towards the sofa. Don't ask me why we didn't just turn a light on. I know for a fact that I wasn't thinking straight having just woken up to this. The moon was bright that night, so as we got closer, I saw what I can only describe as a dark male shadow sitting perfectly upright with no distinguishable features. I instantly knew that it wasn't Dad, but I called out anyway. We stood there watching for what felt like a lifetime when a sudden wave of emotion came over me. I felt like whatever was sitting on that sofa was evil, and in that split second, its head began to turn. We ran for our lives back into my room, locked the door, and turned every light on. We didn't sleep at all that night. We told our parents in the morning, still hoping that somehow it was just Dad who assured us that he had not left his room all night. To this day, I still regret not turning the light on and knowing for sure what I was looking at. But at the same time, I think it's maybe for the best. My sleep paralysis and various other things continued in that home until we moved out two years later, but nothing like the shadow man on the sofa. Now I'm 24 and have experienced sleep paralysis maybe five times since the day we left. Since leaving, Mom has also opened up about her experiences in the house, none of which she wanted to tell us at the time for fear of scaring us even more. All I know is I am glad to be out of that house. For decades, people have claimed disturbing encounters with supernatural humanoids that have one thing in common – their maniacal smiles. We'll begin with the story of a man named Woodrow Derenberger, better known to his family and friends as Woody. Susan Shepard, a writer on and researcher of the paranormal, says it was shortly after 6 p.m. in the evening when Woody Derenberger was driving home from his job as a sewing machine salesman at J.C. Penney's in Marietta, Ohio, to his farmhouse in Mineral Wells, West Virginia. The ride home was overcast and dreary. It was misting a light rain. Susan continues, As Derenberger came up on the intersection of I-77 and Route 47, he thought that a tractor-trailer truck was tailgating him without its lights on, which was unnerving, so he swerved to the side of the road and, much to his surprise, the truck appeared to take flight and seemed to roll across his panel truck. To his astonishment, what Derenberger thought was a truck was a charcoal-colored UFO without any lights on. It touched down and then hovered about 10 inches above the berm of the road. Much to Derenberger's surprise, a hatch opened and a man stepped out looking like any ordinary man you would see on the street. There was nothing unusual about his appearance, except the man was dressed in dark clothing and had a beaming smile. There was, however, something not quite right about that smile. The strange figure said that his, its name, was Indrid Cold. Certainly, Cold is the definitive, sinister, smiling thing. 
He was an enigmatic character who played a significant role in the Mothman wave that dominated Point Pleasant, West Virginia from 1966 to 1967. Cold's crazed and eerie smile never left him, something which provoked fear among those who encountered him. He still surfaces to this day, much to the cost of those who cross his path. Indeed, in the new book The Black Diary, Susan Shepard talks about her very own encounters with what may well have been cold in the early 2000s. The Hat Man is a man-in-black type being that appears in shadowy form, not unlike the infamous Shadow People, to whom the Hat Man is almost certainly related. On many occasions, however, the Hat Man appears in regular human form, wearing a black suit and sometimes a long overcoat or a cloak, always black as well. Most noticeably about this creepy figure is, of course, his hat. Sometimes it's a fedora, other times it's an old-style top hat. Occasionally it's more like a cowboy hat, but regardless of the kind of headgear, it's always present and always black. Many of the encounters occur while the victim is in a distinct altered state, that of sleeping. Angie had just such an encounter in Leominster, Massachusetts, on September 6, 1994, as she told me late on the evening of October 8, 2014. Her reason for contacting me was due to the fact that, quite out of the blue, she had suddenly begun to dream of the events of 20 years earlier, and dream of them almost every night for a couple of weeks. Angie was sleeping when the mysterious thing disturbed her sleep by manifesting in her bedroom and staring at her with a menacing smile on its pale, ghoulish face. For a few moments, Angie was unable to move. As she finally broke the spell of paralysis, however, the hat man was gone. J.P. Perro was a woman who had a number of bizarre UFO-themed encounters in May 1967 in upstate New York. At the time, she was a host on Babylon, New York's WBAB radio station. On one particular day, Jay decided to take a walk. It was barely dawn and the town in which she lived was still shrouded in shadows. As she walked past a particularly dark alley, a woman in black loomed into view as if from nowhere or from some nightmarish realm. Then out of the blue came a black Cadillac the absolute calling card of the MIB and the WIB. It came to a screeching halt next to the two women, and out of one of the rear doors came an unsettling-looking character. It was a man dressed in a dark gray suit with what was described as an oriental appearance and who sported a disturbing smile. The driver seemed almost identical in appearance. The man with the fearsome smile shook Jay's hand and said, I am a pole. Jay said that holding a pole's hand was like holding the hand of a cold corpse. Should you ever encounter one of these disturbing entities, it's probably best to stay away from them and as far away as possible. Their smiles are most definitely not of the inviting kind. Balleroy Mansion 
has stood in Philadelphia's Chestnut Hill section for over a century. The estate was built in 1911 by a carpenter who eventually murdered his wife in the main house, at least according to lore. The apocryphal story set the tone for tales to come. In 1926, the mansion was purchased by the prominent Easby family, whose roots could be traced back to England's Easby Abbey. The family also counted Civil War hero General George Meade among its notable members. When Meade's great-grandson, George Meade Easby, took control of the 32-room mansion, he named it Balleroy after a chateau in France. Over the years, the Easby family experienced strange happenings in the house, from hallucinations to unexplained deaths. Several housekeepers reportedly died on the premises. Encounters of ghosts were so rampant that Balleroy earned the title of Most Haunted Home in America and the Most Haunted House in Philadelphia. Many visitors have observed an elderly woman with a cane dressed in black and hovering in a corner on the second floor. The usual bangs and knocks are prevalent. Wall decorations have fallen inexplicably. One particular painting was flung 15 feet by an unseen force. The nail in the wall was still secure and the rear hanging wire unbroken. People have even claimed to see the ghost of Thomas Jefferson standing near a tall grandfather clock in the dining room. But there is one room inside the mansion that stands apart, an 18th century drawing room with a simple piece of furniture called the death chair. The chair is a 200-year-old wingback that was reportedly once owned by Napoleon. George Easby advised guests not to sit in the antique chair and draped a silk rope over its arms as a method of dissuasion. The reason? He and many others were convinced that sitting down spelled certain doom. Though a reputed four deaths have been attributed to the chair, holdings in the Chestnut Hill Historical Society only corroborate three of them. According to Chestnut Hill Patch, Easby told the authors of Haunted Houses USA that his housekeeper, his cousin, and a friend all died within weeks of sitting in that chair. Easby blamed the chair's malevolence on Amanda, a ghost he dubbed a loose cannon. She has ripped open doors only to slam them shut and seems to possess powers of a wicked nature. Amanda has been seen not as an apparition, but as a cold ectoplasmic red mist hanging in the doorway from the reception room into the blue room. It is here where Amanda appears and entices people to sit in the chair. Seances and visits from famous mediums have attempted to unlock the Balleroy mystery. One of them was Judith Richardson Haynes, who, upon crossing the threshold, remarked, my God, I can't believe how many spirits are in this house. Interestingly, Easby came to respect the many ghosts in his home and, on one occasion, voiced his wish for them to stay indefinitely. He believed one of the ghosts to be his own mother, Henrietta, whose guidance from the other side helped to steer him away from opportunists and bad business deals. Additionally, Easby claimed to have found papers from a great-uncle stashed away in a cabinet, which ultimately led him to a sizable inheritance. 
he credited his mother's ghost with that discovery, as well as the discovery of a pair of valuable candlesticks hidden in the attic rafters which belonged to his mother. Another ghost he believed was his brother Stevie, who died at the age of 11 but was seen many times at the window. On one occasion, a laborer working outside glanced up and saw a young kid with blonde hair staring down at him. Easby passed away in 2005. For a short time, Balleroy Mansion offered tours, allowing visitors to admire the home's antique treasures. But as the years passed, the antiques were removed and tours were discontinued. The Balleroy is now, again, a private residence. When Weird Darkness Returns Frank Lloyd Wright is regarded as one of the most brilliant minds in the history of American architecture. One of his creations was Taliesin, meant to be a hideaway for Wright and his mistress. But that beautiful home soon became a scene of utter horror, and it left behind a haunting. That story is up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Or All the Seas with Oysters by Avram Davidson. This is a classic collection of short stories written by Avram Davidson, one of the most acclaimed science fiction writers and fantasists of the 20th century. It includes his best-known short story, Or All the Seas with Oysters, and many, many more. Or All the Seas with Oysters by Avram Davidson, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. You're a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Why don't we hear what Weird Darkness family member Mike had to say about his? Darren, I happen to be trying new pillows from different sources, something different than the standard pillows that get crappy all too soon. So, what the heck? My pillow sounded worth trying. I ordered two queen-size MyPillows, and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Mike said he received two queen-size MyPillows, that's because he heard about them on Weird Darkness and he was able to get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code WEIRD, that's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD. Congratulations to Esri Dax's lover. They are this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner and they're receiving a Weird Darkness t-shirt. Plus, I'm also following them on Twitter now. And next week's winner will receive a free audiobook from Audible, and then I'll follow them as well. If you want to win, it's easy to register. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter, and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you'd like, and the more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. So follow Weird Darkness right now, and get to retweeting, you weirdo! Frank Lloyd Wright has long been regarded as one of the most brilliant minds in American architecture. He designed breathtaking homes and buildings and created a unique legacy that continues today. One of his creations was Taliesin, a home and studio in Spring Green, Wisconsin that was also meant to be a hideaway for Wright and his mistress. But on August 15, 1914, 
the beautiful home became a scene of horror when a grisly murder claimed the lives of Wright's mistress, two of her children, and four others who worked at the estate. It also, some say, created a haunting that endures to this day. The story of Taliesin began when Wright met the woman who would become his mistress, Martha Mamma Borthwick Cheney, the wife of one of his clients. Not long after being commissioned by businessman and Oak Park, Illinois neighbor Edwin Cheney to design the house in 1903, Wright fell in love with Mrs. Cheney, even though he was married and had six children of his own. The pair eventually ran off to Europe together. While the Cheneys divorced, Catherine Wright refused to release her husband. Seeking a place where he and Martha could live out of the public eye, Wright built a residence and studio in Spring Green, Wisconsin in 1911. Wright called the estate Taliesin in honor of the Welsh bard, but the press dubbed it the Love Cottage. Locals were not welcoming of their new neighbors. They were criticized by church ministers and even the superintendent of the community's schools. When sharp tongues, disapproving looks, and even threats failed to convince the couple to leave Spring Green, townspeople called on the sheriff to arrest Wright. The eccentric architect, however, cared little about standard conventions or what the outside world thought of his relationship, and there wasn't anything that the sheriff could do about it. On the afternoon of August 15, 1914, Wright was in Chicago working on the design of Midway Gardens. At lunchtime, Martha and two of her children, 8-year-old Martha and 12-year-old John, sat down to eat on the porch at Taliesin. Inside the main dining room, at the other end of a 25-foot-long passageway, Wright's draftsmen and laborers also gathered around a table to be served lunch by Barbados native Julian Carlton, a handyman and servant who had spent the summer waiting tables and performing housework at Taliesin. Carlton's wife, Gertrude, did most of the cooking. As the workers were eating in the dining room, 19-year-old draftsman Herbert Fritz and his tablemates noticed something unusual. We heard a swish as though water was thrown through the screen door. Then we saw some fluid coming under the door. It looked like dishwater. It spread out all over the floor, he recalled. After serving soup to Martha and the children, Carlton instructed his wife to leave the house. He then returned to the porch wielding a hatchet and attacked Martha and the two children before dousing the floors with gasoline and setting the entire house ablaze. The dining room where the workers were having lunch suddenly burst into flames. The door had been locked from the other side. With his clothes burning and hair on fire, Herbert Fritz jumped out the window next to where he was seated and rolled down the hillside to put out the flames. When he looked back, he saw Taliesin in flames and saw Carlton swinging a hatchet at his co-workers who had managed to force open the dining room door to escape through the window to the courtyard. Although badly burned and wounded, both 35-year-old carpenter Billy Weston and landscape gardener David Lindblom managed to escape with Fritz. They hurried a half-mile to the nearest house with a phone to call for help. The people who rushed to the scene found the bodies of Martha, her two children, two workers, and a 13-year-old boy. David Lindblom later died from his burns. Hours after the attack, 
Carlton was discovered barely conscious inside the basement furnace of the house, having swallowed muriatic acid. He never offered a reason for his attack and died from starvation seven weeks later. Gertrude Carlton said her husband had become increasingly paranoid in the weeks prior to the attack, even keeping a hatchet in a bag next to his bed. Rumors spread that Carlton had been harassed by some of the workers at Tallison, and there had been an argument a few days before the attack over the saddling of a horse. One of the surviving workers told the police that Martha had told the Carltons they were being let go. The killer's wife confirmed they were due to take a train back to Chicago that night. Through his grief, Wright set out to resurrect Tallison, much of which had been destroyed by the fire. By the end of 1914, the residential wing of the estate had been rebuilt, and by the end of the year, Wright had fallen in love with another woman who had penned him a condolence letter. The two married in 1923, after Catherine finally agreed to a divorce, two years before Wright's estate burned to the ground once again, this time from faulty wiring. Wright once again rebuilt Tallison, which still stands today. Memories of the tragedy are said to still linger. In the wake of the attack, firefighters took the dying and badly burned victims to a cottage on the property called Tanya Derry. It is in and around this cottage where Martha's spirit has been reported over the years. She is usually dressed in a long white gown, and while she is a peaceful presence, she is obviously restless and lost. It is also said that doors and windows open and close by themselves within the cottage, and lights sometimes turn on and off. Witnesses say that they often close the place for the night only to return the following day to find everything wide open. The events of the past have truly marked the house as a haunted place that will forever be linked to a tragedy of more than a century ago. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And as mentioned earlier in the podcast, this month is the anniversary month for Weird Darkness, and in honor of that, instead of asking you to become a patron, I'm asking that you help raise at least $1,000 which will be donated to depression and suicide prevention. And you can give right now by clicking Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. As of recording this episode, we're currently at $135, so we still have a long way to go, and I would really appreciate you taking a moment and thinking about what you can do to help us battle depression and suicide. Again, just click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, get stories that I didn't have time to use in the podcast, and more. And by the way, we have finally finalized what we're going to be doing for Halloween on Weird Darkness. We're going to do my very first Weird Darkness live YouTube stream. And if you want to get the details, I do have a link in the show notes where you can learn more. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. 
you can email me at darren at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. I got an email from Dave and he said, Darren, I wanted to reach out to you and personally thank you for the great show. I work long hours in our family-owned construction business. Working long hours, 18 to 20 hour days are the norm for me, and I tend to lose focus and get bored. But your show allows me to listen and work at the same time, and the hours are less grueling. I've actually listened to every episode and eagerly await new episodes every day. Just wanted to say thanks for helping me be more productive and, in a way, helping our small business be more profitable. I have a couple of stories I'd like to share about some experiences I've had in my travels. I've worked in all the lower 48 states and have stayed at several haunted locations, including the Myrtles, and was even forced to leave the first home I lived in after my young daughter was attacked. I'd also be interested in sponsoring a single episode if you have any need for something like that. Thanks, signed Dave. Dave, um, I have enormous respect for small businesses that, and, and those who are self-employed. Man, to know that I'm helping you get through those extremely long days, that makes my day, actually. And I don't think you can give me credit for helping to make you more profitable, though. I mean, that that's hard work, dedication, and perseverance that you and your family have put in. I mean, you work through the hard times even though they're hard. That's what makes you a success. I'm just a guy who helps take your mind off the monotony once in a while, that's all. But I do appreciate the compliment. And I can't wait to hear those stories, by the way. They do sound terrifying. Man from Kansas City left a review in uh, Apple Podcasts saying, Top-notch podcaster. Very good show with great variety of stories and professional narration. And then I got a very interesting email from somebody who calls himself The Dude. Just watched a car smashed into a tree while sitting up on my porch up on a hill which overlooks my small neighborhood. I was actually listening to your Mothman recap you just sent out. The ambulance has now come and gone, tow truck is hauling off the wreck as I type. The truly strange thing is, it happened right when you were recounting how the Mothman was chasing a car at high speed. No sooner had you said this than a silver blur shot down the road in front of my house at an incredible speed. This was followed by a sudden screech of rubber on the road, as brakes were no doubt heavily applied, and a very loud crash. Even weirder, from the time it took me to begrudgingly pause your podcast and walk briskly from my back porch downstairs through my house and to the end of the driveway, no more than perhaps 20 seconds, a police car was already on scene. I'm not sure how that can be. I was moving at a pretty good pace, thinking I was certainly going to have to help until professional help arrived. The area I live in is a few minutes at best from the outskirts of town. I'm really trying to puzzle this odd occurrence out. Oh well. Hope the guy's okay. Back to Mothman. What a weird night so far. Signed, The Dude. Well, if you'd like to take a moment and drop me an email or post a review of the podcast, I really would appreciate it, and I might read your comments in an upcoming show. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Smiling, Sinister, and Supernatural was written by Nick Redfern. Valeroy Mansion was written by Gary Sweeney. The Shadow on My Sofa 
was written by Bramble Woods. Murder at Taliesin was written by Troy Taylor. And The Mummy's Curse was posted at The Unredacted. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony, and you can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 34, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord, and He answered me. He freed me from all my fears. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness.